0: Welcome to Spark, a health and wellness podcast where we teach high-achieving superwomen how to put their health and happiness back on the top of the to-do list. I'm Angela Wagner, a yoga studio owner, life and wellness coach, and mama of two littles. And with me today is my teacher, my toxins teacher, Ms. Laura Adler, and she is an environmental toxins expert and educator and certified holistic health coach who teaches health coaches, nutritionists and other holistic health practitioners how to eliminate the number one thing holding their clients back from the results that they are seeking, the unaddressed link between chemicals and chronic health problems. She trains practitioners to become experts in everyday toxic exposures so they can improve client outcomes without spending hundreds of hours researching on their own. Combining environmental health education and business consulting, she's helped thousands of health professionals in over 25 countries around the world elevate their skill set, get better results for their clients, and become sought-out leaders in the growing environmental health and detoxification field. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I... I've already introduced them to this world, and if you guys haven't listened to, I did a two-part series on why to detox your home and the first steps in how to detox your home, definitely go back and listen to that, or this one I think will be a little overwhelming, and I think you need to do it in order. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it helps.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that I really want to talk about, and I touched on this very briefly, was obesogen. So let, why don't you tell them your story on how you got into it, because that directly links.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I am certified health coach. I came to health coaching after a whole other career that was boring and not fun, not worth talking about. So, you know, I I sort of sort of second round career, got certified as a health coach, um, didn't really know who I was going to serve or what I was going to be doing, very new to having my own business, so kind of figuring it out. And I just said, well, you know what, I can help people with weight issues because like that's easy. And I had a number of my clients who were seeking weight loss, lose the weight. They did all the things I recommended. Like I had really great compliance with my clients and some of them lost weight and kept it off and they felt great. And then I had this like small handful of people that did all the things and like their weight wasn't changing at all. And I felt really frustrated in trying to figure it out for them because I, especially as a new health coach, I was like, oh, I really should figure this out for them or help them get to the other side of this journey that they're on for weight loss. And so I started looking into resistant weight loss and what what causes resistant weight loss. And that's where I really kind of cracked the door open on this whole world of environmental chemicals. And in that specific, at that specific time was really learning about how um, uh, certain types of chemicals or certain chemicals can alter our metabolism in ways that either predispose us to gain weight or can you know alter our metabolism or change the way our fat cells are developing. And that, that has nothing to do with diet and exercise. It has nothing to do with calories in, calories out. It was literally weight gain on a cellular level due to exposure to environmental chemicals. And it just totally blew my mind. And that's really where I kind of started my journey in this space was it became very clear in doing that research that this was a huge missing piece in the conversation around health and wellness. I'd spent, you know, a year and $8,000 in a nutrition program. And I'd been you know, personally immersed in the wellness space for a decade before that. And this was kind of the first time the discussion of toxins was coming up. It wasn't included in any of my health coach training, my nutrition program, which to me struck me as like, kind of a big gaping hole in the conversation. And that's really, you know, that's, that was in 2012. And I've been in this space trying to fill this education gap ever since. But like you said, it was this discussion of these chemicals that were linked to weight issues that really sparked the start of this whole field of work that I'm in now. And what is really interesting is the research around obesogenic chemicals, as they're called, these chemicals that are linked to these metabolic disorders, the research into that has really just exploded in the time since I started doing the initial research. At this point was, you know, 12 years ago. So it's a giant topic. It's a giant topic. And I think it's a topic that most people don't know about. They haven't heard about this idea that chemicals can make us fat. And sadly, it's true. I know, and it sounds like a gimmicky.
0: Can your shampoo make your you fat? You know, yes. you're like, but it, but it can, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's you know, I think the reality is like a single time of washing your hair with shampoo. No, that's not going to make you fat. Not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this chronic daily exposure to this wide range of chemicals. They're not all found in your shampoo that have this obesogenic effect. And then there's even a subcategory of chemicals under obesity. Obesogen- that are referred to as diabetogens, meaning these are chemicals that can lead to diabetes and insulin resistance specifically, but that sort of falls under the umbrella of these obesogenic chemicals. And you know, in a single day, just by living our normal everyday lives, we might be exposed to dozens of these obesogens through the pesticides that are on our conventional foods, through the cash register receipts and plastics that we're touching from you know getting a bisphenol A absorbed through our skin or ingested, the flame retardants, the perfluorinated compounds, nonstick chemicals, phthalates, residues of herbicides in our drinking water, even things like nicotine. So, you know, my hope is that people that are in this sort of women's health arena have long abandoned smoking, but that's not to say that we don't have secondhand or third hand exposures to nicotine, things like high fructose corn syrup, MSG, even things like air pollution. These are all linked to these obesogenic effects where they can really mess with our metabolism and mess with the way that our body regulates fat cells. So there's not really, because I kind of briefly went over a lot of the,
0: touched on a lot of the chemicals that you just talked about. So obesogens aren't unfortunately just like just phthalates or just- Yeah, no, it's a
1: lot. I mean, I think (laughs) there's about 20 chemicals that have been identified as obesogens so far, but there will likely be, as the research continues, that list will continue to grow as we learn that a lot of what's happening is endocrine disruption. That is part of of what's happening with these uh, obesogenic chemicals. So 20 chemicals thereabouts doesn't seem like a lot, but when we're exposed to most of them in a single day, multiple times throughout the day, like these exposures can add up.
0: Oh, for sure. So if someone is having trouble with weight and they've done all the things, from a toxin standpoint, where would you start them? Cause I know that's usually what we look at is like, what are the health, what's the major health issue that you're looking at? And then we start with something right. specific.
1: And you know, actually the reality is, is it doesn't matter what their health issue is because everybody is exposed to these chemicals and everybody is gonna benefit from reducing exposures. Whether it's a metabolic issue or a digestive issue or an autoimmune issue, from a practical standpoint, we're all starting at the same place we're all starting to start phasing out or ideally starting to phase out these exposures in the home. So, you know, I really like to start with what are the easiest things for us to change that don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of expense behind it, it's not expensive, there's not a lot of big barriers to accomplishing the, the change. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh my God, it's gonna be so expensive, or I have to do all these big hard things. And I, I wanna sort of, I like to dispel that because in some instances, The action steps that we take are not only easy, but they're free and they're great. So the first thing is if you have, this is the easiest intervention, if you're using, if people are using um, home fragrances and scented candles and Febreze and those like stick diffusers and incense, or any kind of room sprays, those chemicals, uh, the chemicals that are in those products often contain phthalates and certainly contain other chemicals, VOCs that can have other health effects. But in terms of the obesogen conversation, those phthalates that are act as a sort of fixative for that fragrance so that when you spray a Febreze on your couch, you know, three days later, you can still smell it. Those are typically synthetic fragrances that have phthalates added. And so just stop buying them, throw out what you have, and just don't buy them anymore. And that actually saves you money. You know, what people don't realize is that all of those products are really heavily contributing to the amount of indoor air pollution that are in their homes. And that goes double for things like cleaning products that are heavily fragranced. So it's just a sort of a low-hanging fruit thing to change to just... Ditch those things, stop buying them, save yourself some money, and you won't have to worry about it. I think from there, one of my big non-negotiables is really emphasizing organic food whenever possible. As much as your budget can allow, that that to me is a non-negotiable because so many of the pesticides that we're finding as residues on our food are either obesogenic chemicals or they're carcinogens or they're neurotoxins or they're developmental toxins or they're endocrine disruptors. And so we don't want to be exposed to any of those things. And I know that You know, a lot of people, when they're looking at budgeting their food dollars, they're going to turn to something like the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 list. However, there is some new research that hopefully soon I'll get up on my website. There is some new research that kind of blows the methodology of that rating system out of the water and kind of renders it a little bit obsolete, which is frustrating because so many people are like, dirty dozen, clean 15. And it is a way to prioritize their spending dollars. However, that methodology that EWG uses, it doesn't take into account the relative toxicity of the pesticides, it's just measuring the amount of the pesticide. And there is a 6,000 fold difference in toxicity between the highest and the lowest pesticide. So even if we're looking at a clean 15 that has a really tiny amount of this one pesticide and you've got a dirty dozen fruit or vegetable that has like way higher levels, if the tiny amount here is 6,000 6, times more toxic than those other ones, then that clean 15 one is actually worse. And so it's part of the learning process is like, okay, we think this is a good rating system. The more we learn, we go, eh, maybe that's not the best rating system, which is why organic food for me is a non-negotiable, like as much as humanly possible that you can afford, let's emphasize that. It really helps dramatically reduce what we're being exposed to. Um, I know I talked about this in my classes with you, Angela, but there's been a number of studies that show that when people go from eating a conventional diet To a mostly organic diet, complete, you know, mostly organic, not even 100%, they can drop the levels of these circulating pesticides by 80 to 90% in three to five days. So it's a really fast draining of the bucket that will get these chemicals out of our bodies. um, And then we just have to emphasize not continuing to refill the bucket now that we've emptied it. So that's why, you know, I really emphasize organic. So, getting rid of fragrances and organics are sort of the top two places to start um, that are easy.
0: Yes, okay. I know. And that first one is is sometimes so hard for women. I know it's like when I first listened to you on a podcast, which is how I found you, I was like, "What? What do you mean? my candles? Like, I can't. what?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I said to somebody the other day in a Facebook message, I said, "I'm very often the bearer of bad news. It's an occupational hazard." However, my hope is that this information is empowering for people and not just Debbie Downer because, you know, the good news is that even though in light of all this bad news, we can move the needle on these exposures um, in meaningful ways by practicing avoidance, meaning avoiding exposures. That's really how we need to look at these environmental toxin exposures is what can we start reducing our exposures to?
0: Yeah. So when did this, because I don't remember when we finished CERT course, I guess it's been a little, it's been a minute, but because that research wasn't out then yet, was it?
1: Yeah, that was, that information wasn't out at the time. And in fact, I first heard about it just a few months after our course finished, was learning about that and was kind of waiting for more information to come out because I just kind of had a, a teaser of like, what is the What's the scoop on that? And so I'm, you know, getting ready to kind of dive into looking a little bit more closely on that, at that research. But again, this is really why, like, let's err on the side of caution. Let's prioritize organic. That's especially true for any dairy products. If people are consuming dairy and any animal products, uh, making sure that they are pastured, grass-fed, organic, if possible, across the board, because these animal products can really bioaccumulate a lot of the toxins that are in our environment. And many of those toxins, like the pesticides and DDT, which even though it was banned in the 1970s, is still actually present in the environment because it's persistent and it doesn't break down. And so it still kind of sneaks into our bodies. And these are all obesogenic chemicals. I think the other thing that's important to mention is the biggest impact that these obesogenic chemicals have is when people are being exposed in utero. So that really changes the programming of the development of that child so that that child is predisposed to gain weight in a way that maybe the parents aren't experiencing themselves, even though they're the ones that are being directly exposed. So for people that are have children or are planning on having children, like, this is the most vulnerable population across the board, whether it's obesogens or neurotoxins or any of the other categories or classifications that we're looking at. That is the most delicate, sensitive audience. And that means that the woman who is, you know, prior to conception, ideally is really looking at cleaning up her environment and then staying as toxin free as possible during her pregnancy and afterwards is so key. But that doesn't mean that adults, meaning people who are like long out of the womb, aren't still being affected by these obesogenic chemicals. And the example that I like to give is everybody knows somebody who was put on some kind of pharmaceutical medication, an antidepressant, or even some types of antacid medications like Prevacid and Nexium. That we, It's well established that a lot of medications have weight gain as a side effect. Like you can be of normal weight, get put on an antidepressant, and then within three to five months, like you start putting on all this weight that you're like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. That is referred to as chemically induced weight gain. And those pharmaceutical drugs are tr- triggering this change in the development of our fat cells that's now ordering the production of more fat cells and is changing the volume of fat that a single fat cell can hold. And so again that cellular weight gain that has nothing to do with what people are eating or how much they're exercising and a lot of these environmental chemicals behave in the exact same manner as those pharmaceuticals by turning on this trigger in the body that's basically saying you know let's go make more fat cells let's make the fat cells that we already have bigger and it just changes the the marching orders of our stem cells and is that's how we as adults can be affected by these chemicals So, and then we have a really hard time losing that weight. So it's super important, regardless of your age, regardless of where you are in life, to start looking at what can we do to start reducing our exposures to these chemicals.
0: Wow, yeah, that's so fascinating. Oh, okay. Every yeah. time I talk to you, I'm like, oh, more good, in, more good news. No, I'm just teasing. Um, yeah. But I will say like, I mean, and like you said, like we always joke that we're the bad news bearers, but like, I love your message. It's always so empowering. And the thing that I always like to tell clients is like, this is actually something that, I mean, some of it, the the cost part is probably my biggest struggle, you know, like yeah. shifting all my makeup and all that stuff was really expensive and organic. You know, every time I go to buy the $5 gallon of milk, I'm like, oh, but I just yeah. think about and now I know too much, right? So like I'm never yes. gonna make a decision, but Well, that's what I
1: say. You can't unlearn this stuff. Like once you know, yes. not can't like be like, Oh, whatever, neurotoxins.
0: So- well, exactly. But it's like changing your shampoo or using essential oils instead of candles. I mean, it's just it's not that big of a deal. So it's like yeah. and it's easy,
1: right? And when we're asking people to change their diet or to take on meditation or to change their evening routine and stay off their cell phones, like, to do all these things to optimize their health, there's a lot of built-in emotional attachment to those things. You're like, oh, you can tell me I can't eat chocolate cake, I hate you. Like there's all kinds of that stuff where there's a lot of emotional attachment. But when we're looking at like the container that we store our leftovers in or whether or not like we're using a scented candle versus an essential oil, there's less emotional attachment there. I don't say there's none because things that evoke, fragrances evoke a very strong memory trigger for people. And so there is an emotional component there but it's not the same as asking somebody to start doing yoga for the first time like getting over that hump is really hard for people especially with when we're asking them to make dietary changes so in comparison a lot of these changes like are not that big of a deal and people sometimes love to embrace those ones first because they start to feel like they're doing something for their health mm-hmm. that didn't require a lot like if i tell everybody go home Or start throwing, like go through your home and take all those scented candles and the plug-ins and the air fresheners and those reed diffusers. Doesn't matter if they say they're natural, like they're not, it's garbage, throw them out because you're going to dramatically improve the quality of your indoor air and reduce exposures to these chemicals that you're literally inhaling and that are entering your bloodstream with every breath that you take. Like go do that go do that. It's not, and then feel good about doing that. And then don't allow those things to come back into your home. So I think that, you know, in a lot of cases, making changes in this space is actually easier for people.
0: I agree. It's funny. I have a funny story. I went to Chicago this summer with my family and we rented an Airbnb house and I walk in and I was like, oh no there is Febreze plugins. Like I was just like, I was like, John, I can't. Oh my God. I, I literally started panicking. He's like, what is going on? And I, I found five. I went in like oh, five. Can you imagine this house? And I put him on the back porch and he's freaking out. He's like, you can't touch those. I was like, oh, I am not staying in this house for five yeah. days. At day, I start opening the windows. It's super hot. My parents like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, do you guys not smell that? But once you get it out of your Home. It's like, how did I ever live with that potency? You know? uh, yeah,
1: you know, I think it's um, it's the same thing that happens. Like our our sense of smell palate changes, and the way that our taste palate changes mm-hmm. when we stop eating highly sugared, highly salted, processed foods. And people, you know, that's why people who are eating that like highly stimulating, high salt, high sugar, high fat food, junk food, when they go to eat a vegetable, they're like, just is bland. It doesn't taste like anything. It's like, okay, well, because your taste buds have been completely blasted by all these synthetic chemicals, and those foods have been manipulated in ways that will tell your brain, like, yes, yes, it just lights up your brain that it becomes addictive. And then regular food is very bland, but eventually... After you've been away from that food long enough, you start to your palate shifts and you're like, you start to appreciate the subtle flavors and the differences in fruits and vegetables that you couldn't before. And then going back and drinking a soda or eating processed food, it's so salty and it's so sweet that you're like, Whoa, how did I ever eat those things? So it's the same thing that happens with our sense of smell. Um, you know, I didn't really. Think about this stuff before. But as soon as I started taking these things out, I actually became more sensitive to these smells. And I think that that is actually a good thing because it's your body sending you a signal that like, I don't like this. And you were, we were so inundated prior that we were like ignoring these messages of our poor bodies screaming out. We just learned to ignore all those messages. And now that we have quieted the noise when we are getting an exposure to a fragrance like that whether it's an Airbnb or in the back of a taxi or a a Lyft or an Uber which are the worst. So bad. Especially because Lyft encourages their drivers to use these fragrances and plugins and pretty much every Lyft I've been in that has one. Have you told them? Oh yeah, I mean I can't (laughs) help it. I can't. I mean I don't look. I I'm not going in there and being like, "Eh, eh, eh," you know, like wagging my finger at them. But you know, I ask them politely. Hey, do you mind unplugging or putting that in the glove box? Like I am extremely sensitive, and in fact, more people are sensitive, becoming more and more sensitive, and all these and like you sitting in your car all day Mm -hmm. are actually not doing yourself any favors health wise, because these contain chemicals that really mess with your health. And then people are always like, wait, what? And then the whole rest of the car ride is talking about that. And there's definitely been a few Lyft drivers that I've been able to convert who've like literally thrown them out at the destination. They're like, I'm done. And I'm like, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And then the other ones are like,
0: this crazy lady that I picked up today.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's all right. I mean, you can't, you know, I'm not here to proselytize this message. I'm just here to educate and empower. And some people are not going to be receptive to that. And that's okay. I mean, ideally everybody would be receptive, but I think, you know, the reality is that we're not here to, Shame anyone, or to finger wag, or you know, to tell people all the things they're doing wrong. It's really about like, let's what can we do better now that we know? So it's like, know better, do better concept,
0: yes. Okay, so that's a great pivot because I want to pivot to how do we know better? Because I've been, you know, Mm -hmm. as I've gotten this conversation out there, there's a lot of people are like, well. Where are the studies to back this up? Or how do we really know this is true? And how is it that this is legal and the government has our back? And, you know, obviously, like without going into the whole government conspiracy theory, you know, because you obviously know this so in-depthly. We studied it in CIRC course, but what can you share with the audience if people are sort of like, hmm,
1: I don't know. So there's a lot of layers to that. The first is that I'll say is the federal policies that we have that regulate chemicals are extraordinarily weak. And so they don't do a very good job of regulating chemicals and commerce. The single piece of policy that we have that is responsible for the regulation of chemicals and commerce, the Toxic Substances Control Act, was first passed in 1976, and it took 40 years for it to update, to get an update. And in that time period, we've just been you know, dumping tons and tons, hundreds and thousands of more chemicals in the marketplace each year when that law was passed in 1976, there were already 62,000 chemicals on the market and they just got a free pass, meaning they didn't. there was no testing or safety requirement. They didn't have to pass any tests to make sure that they didn't cause harm to humans or the environment in any way. And so even if we just took that little fact, knowing that we can't say, oh, the pro- chemicals in commerce have been tested for safety because literally 62,000 chemicals because that's the number that was already in in circulation in 1976, They they went right under the rope. And then for 40 years, the rope was like really pathetic. It was like a piece of string. There was no rope. So chemicals did not require safety testing prior to going to market, which meant that a lot of the chemicals that are used in the consumer products that we buy and use every day have never been adequately tested for safety, if at all. So there's, you know, approximately 84,000 chemicals registered for use. A new EPA analysis, I think it was earlier this year, late last year. Finally, for the first time, this is a good snippet to share about how crappy our chemical regulation is. Literally for the first time ever, the EPA was like, huh, we should actually probably find out like what chemicals are actually being used versus are registered because they didn't know. They had no idea of how many chemicals or what chemicals were being used. And so according to that analysis, there's about 40,000 chemicals that are actively being used in commerce. And the vast majority of those have never been tested for safety. They have no safety testing data and it was not required. And so that's important for people to know because we can't just assume that like these products wouldn't be for sale if they weren't tested by our government bodies because that's, they just haven't been tested. And it took 40 years to update our chemical policy. It got a little bit better. It's still not the greatest. And in this country, we take what's called, you know, it's innocent until proven guilty approach. The chemical manufacturers who sell chemicals to product manufacturers, like, you know, whether it's a champagne or a household cleaner or whatever it is, they are basically saying, look, if you think our product is harmful, sue us, and then we'll settle it in court. And it becomes this... David and Goliath situation where what is an individual going to do when they feel that they have had a health effect because of an exposure to a chemical that is in thousands and thousands of products you can't sue thousands and thousands of companies and so you know this is where we have these really unusual spotlight cases like Johnson and Johnson with the talcum powder and Monsanto with the glyphosate that the reason why those types of cases get so much press is because they're so unusual. Typically, you know, you have these people who might've been affected by a chemical, but it's not, like I said, it's not in one product, it's in hundreds of products. So you can't then sue a company and say, your product made me sick because that company is going to go, my product, you're using all these other things. It's not us, it's everybody else. And so the system is set up to have the... favor fall always on the side of the um, industry and not on the side of the individual, which is a real problem. And again, which is why these spotlight cases that I, I call them that make such big headlines because they're so rare and they're so unusual for a company to be under the thumb of, in the spotlight, I should say, because of a chemical. And in the case of Johnson & Johnson, it was talcum powder and their baby powder and that's one specific product and they're the primary maker of that product like yes there's generic but there's not like tens of thousands of brands of talcum powder. Johnson and Johnson is kind of the main one. So they're and they've been marketing and selling this talcum powder for decades. Same thing with glyphosate. There's only one company that makes glyphosate. And so that's an easy single target for an individual to sue, but the system is really designed to protect the industry and not to protect the consumer. And, you know, well, and I'm, even
0: like with glyphosate, like those people won their suits, but it's still everywhere.
1: Yes. Right? Yep. Yeah. So and It doesn't actually you know, do anything. Well, I think the tide is actually going to turn on that one. Like that is my gut feeling is that, you know, there's thousands of cases pending against Monsanto. Those were just sort of the first ones and the big ones and they lost them. So, that really gives momentum to all the other people that have been affected, you know. And it's not just the individuals that are being affected, companies are starting to wake up. Home Depot just announced recently that they're no longer going to sell glyphosate based products.
0: Oh, wow. Because they're one but yeah, they were a holdout for a while. Okay, good. Yeah.
1: So, like, you know, I don't know. I don't remember when that goes into effect. I was just at Home Depot four or five days ago and they're all over the shelves still. It's a big, huge aisle. You know, eventually they're probably going to just sell the inventory that they have and then they're no longer going to stock them. But those are big moves. And those are happening in light of consumers demanding better from companies. And when the company isn't going to do anything, they're then going to go after the retailers and say, well, if the company's not going to take these products, if we're not going to win against the company, at least we can win against Home Depot, which is a big company, but it's smaller than Monsanto. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And they're dealing directly with the public, whereas Monsanto is not dealing direct. They're not not a direct-to-consumer company for the most part.
0: Hey guys, Angela here. I have a really exciting announcement to share with you. My 200 hour online yoga teacher training is starting January of 2020. Now I know what you might be thinking. How could I possibly learn how to teach yoga online? I thought the same thing initially, but... I've been training teachers for over 15 years in my Dallas yoga studio and what I've noticed over the past few years is that everyone has become chronically busy to the point of where they can't make the schedule that we create for the in-person training. I couldn't even make it as a mom getting down to my studio seven weekends in a row and every Tuesday night. And there's so many yogis that have this desire to either just deepen their practice, the understanding of the flow, do personal development, get more confidence, or of course, wanting to teach the practice and they just couldn't do it. So what makes this program so great is the obvious part is that there's a 24/7 accessibility to the material and the content. But then we also do weekly live calls because I find that to be incredibly important. To your success, we'll go over the exercises together, we'll journal together, we'll meditate together, we'll practice teach together, we'll do all of the things that we do in trainings together, and you'll meet people from all over the world, which is very cool. You can do it from anywhere, so if you travel, if you're on vacation, if you get relocated, it doesn't matter, it's not going to affect your training and your ability to get your certificate. Everything we do is recorded, including the live calls. So it's really a win-win for everyone. So I invite you, if you're just curious, go to my website, AngelaWagner.com, click on yoga. I just rebuilt the page with tons of information, testimonials, frequently asked questions, pricings, the $400 discount that you'll get if you sign up before the 15th of December. And if you're still not quite sure and you wanna chat with me personally, we can set up a 20-minute clarity call. That's also on the website. You can book it straight there, get on my calendar, and we can just chat together and see if it would be a fit for you. So I hope you'll join us. So if someone says to you, well, that the EPA is supposed to protect us, why are the laws not protecting us? What do you say?
1: Because there's a tremendous amount of industry influence is the, simple answer to that question, you know, we have lobby groups, the chemical lobby is one of the largest lobby lobby groups in existence. And all of these large industries, whether it's, you know, fracking or coal or the plastics industry specifically, they're all, unfortunately, and this is, you know, I, I get so annoyed by so much of the conspiracy theory vibe. But the reality is that when you actually look into a lot of these conspiracy theories, they're not theories they're real. And we have a lot of elected officials in Congress, in the Senate that have accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars from chemical industry lobby groups. And energy issue, you know farming industries, the meat industry, the dairy, whatever it is, um, they've accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so regardless of what their constituents might ask them to vote in favor of or vote against, they've basically been bought and sold by industry. And you know we have a huge issue in this country because of that. And I think that's why we're seeing all of these um, really weak federal policies in place. And what's happening because we have these weak federal policies is different states around the country are starting to enact policies of their own that are more strict than what, for example, the EPA or the FDA might enact. And that's actually creating a a really complicated system of commerce because if you want to sell a product in Washington state or in Oregon or in California or in Michigan or in New Hampshire or whatever, the laws are all different. And so interestingly, the chemical industry was one of the companies that was behind the recent update to the Toxic Substances Control Act that happened in 2016, but they were pushing for you're not allowed to have a state-by-state law, and we just want a slightly weaker federal law so that we can continue to get away with what we want to get away with, but we want to really pressure. This patchwork doesn't work for us, is basically what they say. And I get it. Like It doesn't work, but It's because our federal policies are too weak to actually be protective of human health. And I think the other angle to look at this whole topic, which isn't about a conspiracy or, you know, big government, big industry conversation, is that all of our regulatory decisions about chemicals come from toxicology research And unfortunately, toxicology research is using a fairly outdated model of analysis when it comes to a lot of the chemicals uh, that we're being exposed to, in particular these endocrine disrupting chemicals. So toxicology is really looking at like what are the big doses that we're getting, these big exposures, and then we're gonna kind of factor out like, you know, a bunch of amounts that are much lower, factor in a margin of safety, and then we're gonna call that safe, even though we're not actually gonna test that level or anything below that level and so toxicology is not really testing the real world levels of exposure that we're getting which are these teeny tiny parts per trillion parts per billion levels of chemicals in our shampoo in our scented candle and traditional toxicology goes oh the dose makes the poison those parts per trillion levels don't matter but in fact that they do at least when it comes to endocrine disrupting chemicals and so our regulatory decisions are being based on partially flawed science. So we have that gaping hole in this whole conversation about like the products should be safe if they're for sale. It's like, well, our policies aren't regulating them correctly. And then the data that we're relying on to create those policies is also flawed. So we've got a lot of layers of problems here.
0: I know. Would you say that in general, the studies are funded by industry. So that's...
1: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say in general. I think that definitely there are certainly are studies that are funded by industry. And I think we have to take all of those with a grain of salt um, because there is a very long history of industry suppressing research that does not paint them or their product in a favorable light. So they will suppress information. They will go so far as to, you know, attack scientists that speak out against their products. We've seen this happen over and over again. And so there is, you know, there's a lot of stake for, I get it from a business standpoint. I don't get it from an ethics standpoint, but I get it from a business standpoint. There's a lot at stake for these multi-billion dollar companies selling these products. And so they're, it, it behooves them from a financial standpoint to suppress the bad news about their product. But like ethically and morally that's wrong because they're making people sick. And so we have that happening for sure is that, you know, there is a lot of industry funded research. If there have been analyses or meta-analyses of comparing study results of like, oh, all the industry studies say that, that it's safe, but all the independent studies say that it's not safe. Who would you believe in that instance? So, you know, if people do want to dive into the literature, I think PubMed is a great that's our repository for information. And you just have to kind of do the due diligence to see who's funding this study. Are there any conflict of interest? Those are always stated on these papers. And, you know, I'm like, there's so many layers to this topic that I can just continue going down the wormhole, but I'll stop <laughs> I there know. that, you know, the research is out there. There are thousands and thousands of papers that are indicating How much harm is being caused by exposure to these environmental chemicals is an exploding area of research, whether it's obesogenic chemicals or chemical exposures in fetal development or epigenetics or neurotoxins or all of the research, for example, that's happening into the gut microbiome. And now they're going, oh, are there chemicals that mess with the gut microbiome? Like let's go down all these paths and sidebar there are. And so the more that we dig, the more we're starting to learn about these exposures and how they affect us. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you have to be on the lookout for who is, who is funding these studies. And I encourage everybody to be skeptical of everything. Like I think being skeptical is a good perspective to have in light of being a curious person in the world. Like we have to have, we don't want to be skeptical of everything, but we also don't want to be blanket trusting everything because that's naive. And so there's this balance where I just think we have to be curious people and be willing to, you know, accept the fact that things are not always the way they seem to be or are made to seem to be.
0: Yeah, and I mean you've talked about how like the curious moms are the ones that have made some big shifts in policy and.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, and that's really because of a couple of things. So one, you know, industry as a whole will change only when they are forced to change. They're not going to change if they're not going to wake up one day and go, oh, you know, yeah, these chemicals are really bad. We're going to go with green chemistry, and they're actually never going to do that because by doing that, they're admitting. That their former product was harmful, and that opens them up to tremendous liability. So, companies will never make those kinds of admissions and say, Yes, sorry, everyone, for hundreds of, you know, for 50 years or 30 years or whatever. We've been poisoning you. Like they're not gonna make those admissions. What they'll say is like, oh, we're moving to safer materials and we're modernizing, we're changing with the times. Like they'll use kind of language like that, but without ever admitting that their former product was harmful because again, opens them up to liability. So, you know, that's just something that we have to be aware of that there is this big industry influence that's not gonna go away. But we just have to start doing our own research is bottom line. I had a whole thing I was gonna say and then I forgot what it was. So there it go. happens to me yeah. all the time.
0: <laughs> so w- another thing we study that I thought was fascinating and also, I guess, sad in a way um, yeah. is just that the chemical policies like in Europe are yeah. just much better. And so that's one of the things that I tried to, when I would get pushback about like a sunscreen or something, I'd be like, well, that actually that sunscreen would be banned in Europe because it has this, you know. Yeah. So what do you say about that conversation?
1: Well, so in the early 1970s here in the U.S., we started enacting the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Environmental Protection Agency was formed, and then the Toxic Substances Control Act. This was sort of the burgeoning of the environmental policy movement. And for many years, decades even, the U.S. was really leading the charge on instituting environmental policies, instituting governmental organizations, entities like the EPA to protect our environment. Because prior to that, like it was just, you know, 1970, I think was the first Earth Day. And so that was really the start of this environmental movement. And for, like I said, for a long time, we were leading the charge. But because of all of this industry influence over the last few decades, we have fallen way behind And the European Union, after they were formed, they really looked at putting together a more comprehensive policy that takes what's called the precautionary principle, which is this better safe than sorry. So, you know, here in the U.S., it is, like I said, innocent until proven guilty. And proving guilt is extremely hard based on all those things I outlined before. So it's like we're never going to win so to speak. Whereas in the European Union, they're going, look, we're not asking for absolute proof because technically in science that doesn't exist. People ask for scientific proof all the time. Scientific proof is literally not real proofs are things that happen, happen in mathematics that don't happen in science. In science, we have observation. So the phrase scientific proof is not accurate. Anyway, so in the European Union, they're saying, look, if there's an indication even in the absence of proof or in the absence of very very compelling indication of, you know, yes this is harmful, if there's an indication they're going to move to regulate it. That doesn't mean they're banning all these chemicals. They're just regulating them differently, saying, "Look, you can only use this amount or this percentage in this product and you can't use it in those types of products and you can't use it in products for kids." So they take a far more precautionary perspective of chemical regulation. So it is the precautionary principle, better safe than sorry. And what is fascinating is if we look at, so there was a fascinating study done at the end of 2016 that decided to look at endocrine disrupting chemicals. And it looked at 5% of the known endocrine disrupting chemicals. So really tiny amount. And compared that to, I think it was like 11 chronic health issues like diabetes, cancer, um, loss of I- like IQ points. And what is the economic impact of those exposures to those diseases? And this was so fascinating to me because the research scientists recognized that in order to get the attention of government, they have to speak their language. And that's the language of the GDP our gross domestic product. And how much is this costing us? And how much is, is this costing people? And what that research study found was that this small percentage, 5% of endocrine disrupting chemicals um, in relation to this very limited subset of chronic illness cost the US $340 billion a year in healthcare costs and lost wages. And that's massive. And then they did the same calculation over in Europe, and they found that the amount that these chemicals cost the European Union was about two thirds less. So it was about a third of the cost. I think it was like 134 billion something, something like that. And it's because they're regulating chemicals very differently than we are here. So, and the reason why the European Union handles the regulation of chemicals more seriously is because there are um, national health care. They have government-sponsored he- health care in those countries, and that means that the government is bearing the burden of the healthcare care costs associated with exposures. So they are far, far more motivated to regulate because they are the ones that are footing the bill. Whereas here in the US, we do not have a national healthcare system. And that means that the burden does not fall on government. So the onus is not really on them. They not. They're not. They don't have no a fire under their butt to regulate because they're like, eh, whatever, it's fine. But we are the ones as individuals that are bearing the burden of cost, which is why our healthcare costs in this country are sky high. So I think what's fascinating to me, and I know that you found this fascinating too, is that like, we, yes, it's interesting to talk about like bisphenol A and cash register receipts and phthalates in our scented candles, but it's this backed up perspective of like, holy crap, how did we get here? And why are things the way they are? Like that's very um, paradigm shifting for people when they start to see the world through this different lens of like, these things aren't regulated and we're not being protected. And it's because of these policies and this approach to healthcare. And it's really fascinating slash infuriating slash motivating to actually do something. And so, you know, you brought up moms being the ones that are leading change and industry changes when consumers are affecting the bottom line. And so when moms go and march on Congress or moms start attacking all the baby bottle companies like they did in the 1990s or early 2000s, because they found out there was BPA in the bottles, it was moms that actually shifted the entire conversation about BPA. They put BPA on the map, because they were found out to be present in baby bottles. Moms were like, uh, hell no, hell no. And so baby bottle manufacturer wants to be like, shut up, mom. Right? <laughs> like, they're not gonna, that's just the worst PR ever, which incidentally was the um, PR that Monsanto just recently had got caught with their pants down because internal memos released as part of their Monsanto trials found that internal communication was talking about moms saying that they, quote, wanted to beat the shit out of moms was literally the language that they used. Yeah. So you can't get worse PR than that. You literally cannot get worse PR than that. So, you know, consumers are really leading the Change that we are seeing in the marketplace. So the fact that companies like Home Depot are taking out glyphosate, the fact that Costco and Walmart and CVS and Target are all instituting policies around reducing the use of some of these chemicals first in their brand label products and then eventually in the products that they carry, that's because consumers are demanding it. The fact that Target now has a natural skincare section, small, but it's there. It's not the greatest, but it's there (laughs) is great. The fact that Costco sells so much organic food now, so much, you know, like that is consumers demanding it. And- um, I always tell
0: people, go to Costco. That makes it affordable. We get all, not all, but we get a big majority of fruits and vegetables from Costco, all organic.
1: Yep. And, you know, I think that um, Costco recognized- pretty quickly, that like, oh, people are willing to pay for this. And when a company as large as Costco says, hey, we're going to stock more organic food, it has a massive effect on the entire food industry. Because Costco's are giant stores, they sell tons and tons of goods annually. And so they need to stock their shelves with organic products. So it has this really great elevating effect um, for everyone. And it means that people who maybe have a tighter budget or have a large family that they can afford to start buying organic, whereas previously that wasn't possible. So all of these things, like for consumers, every choice that you make matters. Every choice is telling the companies behind those products, yes, I want this. No, I do not want that. Um, and, And that voting with our dollars, I think, is so important. And women in particular, You know, we are the primary spenders in the economy, we are head of household, we make the majority of the buying decisions in the home, and we have a tremendous consumer marketplace power that we have to prioritize wielding that power in a way that benefits us as an individual, that benefits our family, that benefits our community, that benefits society. That benefits the environment. And I think that's what happens. So I really look at this conversation as like, this is a place of empowerment because it might seem small that you're not buying Ziploc bags anymore, but that you're buying a stature bag or something like that. But it's not small because every purchase that you make over there is really making all those companies that are making the Ziploc bags or whatever think, oh shit, what are we going to do? to fix this. It's why we see companies like Ziploc will use as, a, as an example, all of their packaging is blazoned with BPA free because they know consumers are hip to BPA, but not hip enough to know that there was never BPA in the Ziploc bag in the first place. So it's a little yeah. bit manipulative marketing, but... It's showing that you know companies are paying attention to consumer wants and needs, and that's good.
0: Yeah, that is really good. I also like to think of it in, when the, in the empowerment piece of like you know, when you are going to the store and yes, it might be a little bit more expensive, but you're supporting the local brand or the brand that's oh, yeah. like about this and they care, they actually care about consumers. So you're going to pay a little bit more, but I don't know. I always like to think of the human connection to it too, because yeah. I think in not just in this conversation, but in life, we've kind of gotten away from that. Just thinking about humans as people and everything that we do, every decision we make is going to affect another human in some way. I know that's very yogic woo woo, but it's no, something that-
1: so true. I mean, like I I energetically feel so much more excited and willing to spend my money at a local farmer's market, buying organic food and supporting the hardworking local organic farmer than going to Costco even Mm -hmm. and buying the earthbound organics, mega organic farms that while they're technically organic, you know, those big, large companies like any big, large company has to make concessions in order to scale Uh, production. And so they are organic to the letter of the law, but not to the spirit of organic, I think. And so the more we start working on our own health and look at life through this lens of optimizing our own health and looking at our kids and their future and the environment and all of these issues, it can feel so overwhelming. And there can be such a feeling of loss of control. And I think that's generally what is happening in this current climate is that people are experiencing tremendous anxiety because of all the things that they're learning. And to me, the moment we step into action to actually do something, and I'm not saying like action, like a protest, I mean, action, like going to the farmer's market and buying this and and buying essential oils instead of scented candles and buying clean laundry detergent and buying clean makeup. That is our form of activism. And as soon as we start moving into that space It's like, to me, anxiety and overwhelm and action can't occupy the same space. So you're either in one or the other. So it's sort of like that sympathetic, parasympathetic, you're in one or the other. Mm -hmm. And so if we can move into action, then it helps move us out of anxiety and overwhelm. And we're like, you know what, I can't change all the things, but I can change this thing today right now. And that helps us take those incremental steps towards optimizing our health. And then again, having that sort of outward ripple effect of helping elevate, you know, what's happening in society. So. Well, thank
0: you. I mean, this is so awesome. And you know, obviously I love your work. I follow everything. I've taken all your classes and we're just yeah. talking, what is the next one? And when, what's going, because we're like a little family over there, our toxins family. So what are you up to now? Where can people find you?
1: People can head over to my website, which is lauraadler.com. They can find me on Instagram at environmentaltoxinsnerd. I am up to, as always, just trying to consolidate all this information and share it with people in a way that's empowering. Obviously, you know, as you said in the beginning, and as you know yourself, my core audience are health professionals. So if people take out, take a look at my classes or, you know, whatever, that that's great. If you're not a practitioner, follow me on Instagram, check out what I have. I have a whole bunch of curated products if people are like, okay, yes, I'm convinced I want to start making these steps in the right direction. Sometimes we need a little bit of nudge and options of what's safe cookware, what's safe skincare. So I've got some of that stuff on my website. But um, yeah, people, I just invite people to email me or DM me on Instagram. and be like, hey, I heard you on Angela's podcast. I love hearing where people hear me, uh, find out about me. So yeah, that's it. Come say hi.
0: Yes. I know. I find you on a minimalist podcast and I remember you in class yes. saying, oh, I was on a minimalist podcast. No one heard me on that. And I'm like, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, so it, it's such, well, like you said, because it's a topic that not many people know about, it's like, yeah. it's new to almost everyone. Right. So yeah. you, you could talk about it almost anywhere and you're going to find people interested in it.
1: Yeah, completely. Hands down that. And I think it's more important than ever. I think this is a problem that unfortunately is only going to get bigger as we learn more about it. And so to get people in on as soon as possible, making these changes in their homes, you know, for some people, there may not be a dramatic shift. They notice for other people, they might start seeing, oh, I can breathe better. I can sleep better. I have more energy. It's different for everybody, but like everybody should start doing this stuff.
0: Yeah, for sure. And if you didn't listen to what we said in the beginning and listen to the two podcasts that we did before, please go back and listen to them now because we got into some of the really in-depth conversation that if you don't have some of the basic steps could feel overwhelming. So I'll walk you guys through that. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for being here. This is really fun for me. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Spark. If you have a few extra minutes, please do an act of kindness and leave us a review on iTunes and share this episode with your friends friends it helps us to get the word out you can find the show notes at AngelaWagner.com and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at the Angela Wagner and we'll have all the links that we mentioned in the podcast as well as how you can find Laura all in the show notes remember this week to take the time to give thanks raise a glass and discover what it is that sparks you